Welcome to Civilish, the show about respecting our differences. Today, we had the pleasure to talk to Jonathan Yackley, the Deputy Executive Director of Rise Up Industries. He works with lifers coming out of prison, and we're going to talk about change. Is it possible? Personal responsibility. Is it necessary? And second chances. Should they get one? Here we go. Well, welcome to this episode. My name is Johnny Bird, and today we have... Jonathan Yackley. He is the current Deputy Executive Director with Rise Up Industries. Before joining RUI, he had nearly 10 years of international business and development experience, mostly over in India and Pakistan. As part of that role in South Asia, he founded a social enterprise that employed at-risk populations, mostly in the slums. He also partnered with other nonprofits to help them procure and implement grants. Going back even further than that, he interned with Homeboy Industries right here in Los Angeles while in college. That was a wonderful experience, and as soon as Rise Up Industries had an opening, he jumped at it. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for being with me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited that you can be here with me today. I did a little introduction of who you are, but I'm going to ask you to go into that a little more. Who are you? What makes you, you? Yeah, gosh, a question that we should probably get asked more often. (laughs) Um, Man, I would say I am a compilation of the environment I grew up in. My my folks uh, had a really strong relationship with my family growing up and then life experiences. Uh, Since then, I I grew up in a home where... um, my my dad actually was left a lucrative career in banking and to start his own uh, nonprofit. And he kind of, from a young age, he, he always had this dual, these dual principles that he would raise me with. Uh, I remember first year of junior high, I think it was 11 or 12 years old. He had me sit down and invest my money in the stock market. <laughs> I had I get got $3 a month in allowance plus birthday gifts. And so I'd saved up two or three hundred dollars and um and so he was like what are your favorite companies let's uh let's invest and so and so he was so it was kind of that that side and then also but on the other side he would also sit me down asking like hey who's getting bullied at school and what are you going to do about it and so it was always this from a young age it was kind of this dual teaching of you're more powerful than you think you can do more in this world than you might think and that hope, that's something that a lot of people don't uh, get to grow up with. And I think that, that really set the stage for a lot of um, the, my optimism of what I could accomplish. Uh, sometimes optimism actually exceeding my abilities. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I ended up um, with that in mind. I, uh, that's kind of what I took with me um, out of high school. I got my degree, went over to South Asia do international business development, started a social enterprise out there. And a lot of the thought was, how do you um, help people in a way that they've identified? You know, when I was doing, out doing this work, this was when that book, When Helping Hurts, had just come out and people were really thinking along those lines. Um, so how do you use like kind of self-identified uh, ways that people would like help um, respond to an invitation rather than kind of barge in? Um, but then also address like a real social need. 
kind of the, the classic question, who's getting bullied right now? <laughs> who's society bullying? And what are you going to do about it? Um, so, so yeah, I think that, that a lot of those, those experiences have made me um, largely who I am. And those experiences have involved uh, sometimes months of hitting my head against a wall, feeling like I'm getting nowhere. Um, and they've involved exciting seasons crazy seasons uh looking down the barrel of an ak-47 once or twice um and and yeah but all in all um i i don't know if that answers your question but that takes me a little bit to where i am today no that's a fantastic answer you've got a lot there there's a real just general idea of service in your family your dad really instilled that in you it sounds like that's right yeah Absolutely. That's awesome. Now, one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you is because of your work at Rise Up Industries. Could you tell us a little more about Rise Up and what they do there? Yeah, Rise Up is such a blessing to be a part of. I, When I was back in college, I interned at Homeboy Industries. And I remember that time felt like this I don't know how you describe it, almost this like holy moment of I walked into their office right off the gold line in LA and they, and I was just like, I was a, you know, college student intern and in in this LA with all the homies around and tatted up and everything. And I'm like, all right, well, what can I do to help? And they're like, get these guys driver's licenses. And I said, okay, <laughs> I'll start by Googling how to get someone a driver's license. And I ended up starting the driver's ed course at Homeboy. And first semester, I ended up helping several guys to get their licenses. But but this, the experience there always stayed with me. So after all these years of international experience um, of development and, uh, and business over there in South Asia, I came back to my home in San Diego and um, my wife and I were about to have our second kid and it was just, it was time to, to put some roots down. And, and we, so we got back and we just, I, I found out that there was about Rise Up Industries, that it was something like what Homeboy was doing, but down here in San Diego. And I was, I just immediately applied for a job. I applied for the role. I was like, look, this is what I love to do. This is a convergence of so many things that I've done overseas, but that I wish I could have done more of from my experience at Homeboy. Um, so what Rise Up does is they they help formerly incarcerated, formerly gang-involved um, men to, after, upon their release from prison, they give them vital job training, prepare them for careers in CNC machining, which, you know, it fills the local industry gap. It's high-paid job, high demand, and it's a really comprehensive program. Like Father Greg Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries, would say, you know, caring isn't a short-term thing, so our programs really can't be short-term either. Um, so we take them for a full 18 months, give them wraparound services, everything from case management to how do you fix your credit score um, to, okay, so someone stole your identity while you were incarcerated. That happened to like half of the first, probably happened to three of the first six guys I talked to. They had had their identity stolen while they were in prison. Um, just just things that you, and they would, they were never able to catch it because they're incarcerated. Um, so, so it's working with this population and it's specifically the people in this 
group that wanted to change. They already made that choice. Rise Up Industries didn't convince them to change. They're walking with them and, and kind of aiding their journey towards transformation that they already made a choice of. Um, we help people who want it, not who need it. And, and that's a phenomenal group to work with. They, they inspire me all the time. That's fantastic. I think that's an important aspect as well that you just mentioned there. People that actually want it because we can't make anyone change. That's right. And I have had the pleasure to meet a couple of guys over there at Rise Up Industries. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I don't belong because these guys are very different than me. (laughs) Yeah. And that is, you know, that's something that is so important. That, that dynamic you just talked about, because we all feel it. It's almost, you'd have to be fake to not say that, but it's really, so really at the, from the onset, the way we structure everything, it's a process of breaking down us and them mentality because truly society has taught us that it is us and them. Um, Society wants to segment off people who are formerly incarcerated um, hey, maybe they can have this blue collar job for a little bit, but you know, one little slip up and let's just keep them in jail where we feel more comfortable. Um, it's not, it's not like a, an embracing mentality. So, so that, that, that concept, that was one of the first things I noticed when I walked into homeboy, it was like, I didn't know who was staff and who was, and who was, you know, the people in the program largely because they're further along, uh, the process and, and they've hired a lot of their, their guys. Um, but it rise up too. you know, we, uh, one of the guys just said, you know, the members and the staff are both like a second family to me. We have such different life experiences, but the more you get to know them, the more you realize, uh, you know, another Greg, father Greg Boyle quote, there's no us in them. There's only us. Um, you really realize, yeah, you can see yourself in them. You can see them in you. You can really feel that that connection. Those are fantastic points. And something that I would love for anybody that listens to this to really pick up on and really meditate upon. Because hmm. we're always looking to go into groups like tribalism, if you will. Yeah. Just find our tribe and keep everyone else out. And That's right. And it's just a really big deal. I've got another friend who works with people in jail as well. And it's very interesting. I mm-hmm. don't know what to do. I, I've always said about service in general, the work needs to be done. I wish somebody else would do it, but most of the time they won't. So I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> That's awesome. Why former gang members? Are you drawn to that particular population? Well, the former, the reason we do former gang members specifically, um, and this is actually kind of a distinction from most reentry programs, um, is that there's people, you know, every, people make mistakes and they get incarcerated and sometimes they don't make mistakes. Sometimes they just consciously do wrong and they get incarcerated. Uh, And that is a certain population. But former gang members, it's more of a systemic issue. When we work with former gang members, you're actually addressing more of the root of the problem. Yeah, it's more that people that are, you know, they grow, people who are a part of gangs, there's a good chance that they have a family member who is a part of a gang. One of our graduates, his, 
Chris's life goal at, when he was a kid was to join his father and uncle in St. Quentin. And that, and he, you know, join their gang, be a part of it, like follow suit. Uh, that was the, that was the family business, so to speak. And so it represents the systemic issue going on that, uh, that, you know, as Greg Boyle would say, gang violence is a symptom. It's not, we keep trying to stop it as if it was the issue itself, uh, but it's actually a symptom of a much larger issue of what's happening largely in um, American ghettos and American in certain parts of our cities that receive public health inequities. Um, oftentimes minority communities, especially African-American communities. Um, these are the ones that just have, they're just overrepresented in the incarceration system. And the cyclical nature of gang recruitment, which starts as early as age 10, to criminality, to incarceration, which then reinforces your gang affiliation, such that when you get out, who are you going to go to? Your gang. <laughs> and this cyclical nature needs to break. Uh, we need to break this. Um, we need to break that cycle. And so by specifically working with former gang members, we're getting at some of those root issues um, of what has gone wrong in our society, not just to correct the people making it wrong, but to look at what are we as a society doing wrong here. That's very interesting. I'm wondering just quickly at something you said there, uh, one of the things I like to do on this podcast, Civil-ish, is to poke just a little. I was yeah, wondering, <laughs> you mentioned a quick comment about the environment, about the society. Is there a personal responsibility aspect as well, or is it generally an environmental aspect that we're talking about? Oh, if you'd ask the guys in our program, you know, did you mess up or did you just get dealt a bad hand? Every single one of them would say, I messed up. Um, there's no lack of ownership. And that's something that strikes me. You know, people, they are more willing to say, I messed up than society is at fault than people would give them credit for. Um, in my conversation with people on this issue who have never been incarcerated, uh, they're a little more hesitant to say that there's a both ends going on. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it's personal responsibility is huge. And that is one of the first steps to transformation is acknowledging where you went wrong. Not playing the victim anymore. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. I think you have kids. I have kids. We know when they play the victim. So. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Even as an adult, I'll realize, oh, no, I just played the victim. Not true. Uh, Very true. That's right. Although, you know, because this is civil-ish, let's, let's, uh, let's throw it back a little bit, though. Um, I think we all like to think we made good choices growing up. Um, and we were more hesitant to acknowledge that we had good choices to make. We had a lot, we had a lot more good choices than the guys in our program. Uh, one guy who just came through on an interview um, a couple months back looking into the program, his he saw his first dead body when he was, I think, seven years old. His parents were both just hardcore drug addicts. Um, his grandpa at one point gave him advice on how to kill someone if he needed to when he was nine years old. And he said, that was my first memory of parental advice ever given to me. Um, 
so we talked about, and he's an extreme case, obviously. Uh, but, you know, I may have made better life decisions than him. I also had a lot better decisions to make. That's an excellent point. I do appreciate that. So we talked a little about, and I think you got at it, but if we haven't, let's make sure we cover it. Why are people drawn to gangs in the first place? Well, the most, the number one cause, uh, the number reason for people joining gangs would be kinship, a place of belonging. Um, now, it's not true kinship. And this is something that most people will identify in their transformation process of leaving game, gangs is that the community that I was always chasing, the kinship I always thought I would get, was just always at an arm's distance. Um, it's the perception of deep community. And that's the, that's the number one pe- reason people join gangs. Okay. I don't know how long you've been at this. You've been at it for a, a, quite a few years, probably by now. In society, they talk about a loneliness epidemic these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the people who self-isolated during COVID-19 only to realize that their life hadn't changed. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'm wondering about that. And it's, it's kind of like a search for kinship, a search for meaning in some way. Mm. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Um, search for meaning, kinship, opportunity. A lot of guys who are in gangs got bullied. And the one way to not get bullied was to join a gang. Um, yeah, you want, that, you want that group belonging. So they're not that different from us after all. <laughs> now, these guys, they've spent some serious time in jail. 20, yeah. 30, 40 years. Yeah. What does incarceration accomplish? Does it accomplish anything? Gosh, it's a great question. Um, you know, there's, I think with the incarceration issue in general, we're trying to figure out as a society what to do with it. And I think that there's a lot of really well-meaning people in this process. And that there's, and there's also a lot of programs. One of our guys uh, who was recently released and had done, I think 20 to 30 years. He's like, you know, incarceration is a lot better when I got like my last few years, it had improved a lot from my first view. Um, So there is, so it's good to acknowledge, you know, there's, there's some progress that's being made in our incarceration system uh, in spite of our global position in incarceration and recidivism statistics. Um, Recidivism meaning the rate at which people go back to jail after getting out. Um, which which we're not that great at as a country at the moment. Um, of course, argument could be made that we're just way better at the policing and putting people in jail part of things. <laughs> but but either way, the one thing that incarceration is trying to accomplish is change. Um, what is hard to say is the third variable of the fact that these guys are growing up in prison. A lot of them were incarcerated when they were young. And they didn't know what they were doing. And they were trying to give their life to some cause. They were trying to be something or someone. And it took some years for them to grow up and get out of that. And, you know, would they have grown up just the same if they were in some, you know, national park (laughs) for 20 years? Maybe. Um, Or maybe the incarceration system actually uh, helped them. Maybe it actually changed their behavior. 
But I think the third variable of people just growing up is huge. Hmm. Okay. Most people on the outside would say incarceration. I don't know if it helps those guys on the inside, but it helps me. I feel better. That's right. Yeah, that is our, I mean, that is our addiction as a society. It's just an addiction to control. And this concept that if we can have enough power and if we can exert enough power over people and, you know, groups that can that make us feel out of control, then we sleep better at night. And that is a dangerous road to go down because it's never going to, you're never going to be in control. Um, you're creating uh, some, some concept of a society that's just not there. Um, but I get it, you know, people, you know, they don't want the guy, and a lot of incarcerated people feel the same way. If, for example, uh, if there was a, a person who was a child molester, you feel a lot better knowing that that guy's incarcerated and not just out on the streets playing with kids. Um, and there's something to that, that there's definitely something to that, removing those people from society. Uh, and, and I get that. And I think the guys in our program would also acknowledge that. Some of them would acknowledge, hey, it was good that I was that I got incarcerated. Several of them said I was happy that I got incarcerated when I did, because if I wasn't, the trajectory I was on would have been much worse. Um, so, so there's there's certainly something to be said for incarceration. That's interesting. I have a family member who is also incarcerated, and he still hasn't learned his lesson because he's still in hmm. for hmm. the umpteenth time. What is interesting is he will make comments occasionally about how he's getting too old to go back because it's not as easy to do the time anymore, but he still goes back anyway. Wow. Wow. That's, do you, do you, uh, have you identified any reasons why? I haven't had too much time to talk with him. Uh, he's not in the local area. But let's turn very quickly to the similarities between your work that you do now and the work that you did in South Asia or the differences. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, there, there certainly are a lot of similarities. I was working with uh, low-income populations and informal settlements. Um, most of the time was in India and um the, the place where I was for four years, actually, my wife and I actually lived in an informal settlement ourselves, um, which, you know, we took a little bit of flack from, from a lot of people, but we're glad we did it. And we lived there in that time. And we, uh, it, it's, it's pretty obvious that there is a difference between us and them. <laughs> Going back to our previous conversation, biggest one being, I'm a six foot four white dude that does not, that just sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, and does not didn't speak Hindi or Urdu at the time. Um, eventually, I was you know I, I stayed with people long enough, and I became fluent in those languages. And I so I was always an outsider. Um, but so the the, diff, the main difference is just that I had a lot personally, a lot left to give. Um, I I was able to help a lot of people, um, but you know a lot of people were probably helped me more than they were helped. Um, there's certainly a lot of, of that dynamic going on. Um, but because it wasn't my native country, um, I there's always an extra, ex extra effort to, to what I was doing. But similarities, 
the group there, this is a, a 99% Muslim community in a Hindu dominated government um, where there were very discriminatory um, practices, uh, whether former or, or formal or informal. The feeling that I would, the sentiment that I hear from uh, certain minority groups in America really resonates with the sentiment that I would hear from Muslims in India. Um, that it's more than just a religion. It's like, it's your people. Uh, that your people are treated less than uh, if you apply for a job uh, with the last name, with a Muslim last name, you're less likely to get it than if you do it for a Hindu last name uh, in a lot of companies in India. And it's a similar, African-Americans have expressed that sentiment um, in the U.S. So, so there is a lot of similarities in those terms. Um, and I think we, we started talking about, on, about this a little bit, but just the the us and them dynamic of so much relief work or development work meet well-meaning or not creates this uh two categories of people the people that are here to help you know the people who are doing good in the world and then the people who are receiving help uh the takers in the world and um and it really creates kind of an unhealthy uh dichotomy yes yes that you really need to break down and i would say that's something that Rise Up Industries has done a great job at. It's something you always need to be aware of. Um, you always need to be aware of when those dynamics are at play, uh, but breaking that dynamic down so that there's no us and them, it's, we're, uh, it's us, we're in this together. Um, I could theoretically, <laughs> God forbid, I could accidentally be driving one day and lose my thought and crash and hurt someone and be deemed that it was, you know, malicious and go to prison or, and then I would be in their boat with them. Um, yeah. But either way, we're all humans and we're all trying to figure it out. So, yeah. Great answer. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I noticed in your answer was just the willingness to be humble because it takes humility to put yourself on the same plane as everyone else. Even those people that are that we deem them. Hmm. Yeah. That's right. And I think you've, I was going to ask you, what does it mean to be human? But you've kind of gotten at it right there to where, but I'll ask this one quick question anyway. Under what circumstances would you change that? Is there something that can be done and suddenly that guy is not human anymore? That guy does not, is not, is them. He's not, we're not us anymore. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it's such a good question to, to think like under what circumstances, because, you know, part of what it means to be human is human rights. You have access to these human rights. And I don't, we almost have these categories of humans where those rights can change and be modified. Um, you think about a war, uh, you're, you're, you're probably not humanizing the person that you're shooting. Um, that would be an extreme example. Um, but you know, in the penitentiary system, um, thinking about incarceration and everything, uh, there's certain people that society just feels better when they're not around. But that doesn't change the fact that they're still human. And I think this is an important, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people think about, you know, one of the famous things that Jesus said that people will quote is, 
if someone slaps you on one cheek, give them the other. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus was saying that in the context of almost a legal commentary, um, where he was just going off of, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, he goes in, you know, don't resist an evil person. And, and he talks about, they slap one cheek, give them the other. If they sue you for your jack, give them a coat, make you walk one mile, go two. Um, but those are all deeply legal points. And they're rooted in a Levitical law where if someone kills you or kills someone, then they also lose their life. They are no longer, they no longer have that right to be human. Um, they are now dead. And, and Jesus was challenging that. He was trying to transform our concept of that. And these, you know, the religious teachers of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they were police as much as they were priests. They were officers of the law. They were um, your CEOs. <laughs> they were all, they were parole. They were all of those as much as they were religious figures because they were upholding the law, the legal system of the day. And, and so what Jesus is almost transforming the legal system for us to look at it differently. And I think that, unfortunately, I wish he would have given us a step-by-step -step <laughs> guide on how to do it. <laughs> um, but, but, there's something of, uh, and you see it in other religious, uh, I don't mean to just pigeonhole this to, to Jesus' teaching. You see it in a lot of other religious systems. I know Gandhi points a similar concept out of an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Um, but, but this growing consciousness of how do we go beyond, um, okay, that person messed up. They are no longer human. Let, let us now dehumanize them. Um, and, and at the same time, hold the tension of, gosh, some people we don't want around. They're not ready. They don't want to act like what we've agreed upon <laughs> as good human behavior. Um, and if they, haven't, if they don't want to play along, then we don't really want to play with them. Um, so, so it's a tension. It's a tension. But there's a lot of amazing people out there that are uh, trying to figure out what does it look like to transform penitentiary systems, incarceration, so that people aren't just being punished for what they did wrong, but they're being improved so that they don't do that again. That might be an actual larger conversation if penitentiary actually goes back to the root word of its meaning anymore to repentance. That's a, that's a big conversation. <laughs> oh, that is huge. Yeah. But I've We've talked for quite a while now, and I am so thankful for your time here today. The one last thing that I want to do is to make sure that you have the last word. Is there any other thing that you'd like to say before we go today? Yeah, I mean, what the most, the most important thing you can do with, with situations like this is just try to, you can, have, you can go back to your comfortable position, you know, or uncomfortable position, depending on where you stand. But for the average listener who has an opportunity, uh, hit us up at Rise Up Industry. Talk to a formerly incarcerated person. Stand with them for a little bit. Walk a mile in their shoes. See what it's like. And then, and then let that inform how you think about incarceration. And you're going to find that a lot of these guys, they fall on all sides of the aisle politically. Um, what, but the important thing is that you're going to get the humanity of them. And I know, oh, Johnny, that's something that you've really got to do with all your time volunteering with Rise Up, and you can probably speak to that 
um, better than I can. Um, but just the idea of when you stand with the people that are at the margins of society, you kind of recognize a fuller perspective of humanity and what it means to be human and what false limitations you might have been putting on that concept that are actually inhibiting your own growth, your own understanding, your own, it's limiting your own ability to love, to experience joy, uh, your own mess, your own messed up. Uh, issues, your own ways that you've messed up that might not have a, a sentence to them. Uh, but when you learn to embrace people at the margins, you learn to have more grace for yourself too. And it just opens you up. Uh, so for the sake of your own joy, I would just put a plug to to come check us out. Uh, come to Rise Up Industries, check us out online, riseupindustries.com. Um, if you want to give, we've got a way to donate. If you want to serve, we, we take volunteers. If you just want to receive, come and receive. You don't, we don't always have to be the us and them mentality where we coming from the position of power and privilege are the ones who serve. You can also receive from these guys. I've thrown around the idea of uh, them doing uh, calls with people relating their experiences of sheltering in place uh, with people who did solitary confinement for 10 years. <laughs> they, they were able to figure, they're the experts, you know, they're able to figure out how do I develop the programs and resilience uh, in this time to come out on top and change, transform my life. Uh, so, so yeah, that, I would just put a plug in there uh, for Rise Up and the guys. And I, just to say, I love the guys we work with. One of them texts me every morning this devotional that's been. Uh, he's been, you know, probably the most significant spiritual mentor in my uh, current season of life, and. Uh, he's just, uh, he's an AA, he's, uh, he's broken in so many ways, but he acknowledges it. And he has this beautiful life and faith. And I learned so much from these guys. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. You've been listening to Jonathan Yackley talk about Rise Up Industries. I don't want to add or any or take away anything from that. So we're going to call it a day. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for being on with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Johnny. Real pleasure to be on. Well, that was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Civil Edge today. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss one single episode.